Docs for Patient Patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge once again on America's Web Radio. We are delighted to have you with us today. I am Dr. Mike Karuchak. I am at the helm for today's show today. It is good to be with you. Thank you very much for your time and attention. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast live on America's Web Radio every Thursday morning at 8 o'clock and is available at your convenience via podcast. So, the elephant in the room for the show that follows the State of the Union Address is obviously to discuss the State of the Union Address, and, and there is not a whole lot in there about health care. I'm not going to try and compete, nor would it be appropriate for this particular show to talk about the State of the Union in general. Uh, there are lots of people way smarter than I am doing that, and you've probably already listened to all of that. So what I'm going to do is is zoom in on those parts of the State of the Union Address that tackled health care, and there were several. I didn't think there was that many as a general impression at the end of the speech, but when I went back and reviewed the transcript and reviewed the, the speech itself by audio, I realized there was a little bit more substance in there than I really thought at, at first glance. There was actually about four or five major talking points that were brought out. They were certainly dwarfed by the bigger things, the immigration and the tax cut and uh, other some uh, other things, but put them all together and you've got a, a fair amount of substance that was addressing health care and the things that he didn't say I think were just as important as the things that he did say. So I've got several sound bites to share with you. So we're going to bring the cart back up again here, and we'll play the first of these. Here we go. We eliminated an especially cruel tax that fell mostly on Americans, making less than $50,000 a year, forcing them to pay tremendous penalties simply because they couldn't afford government-ordered health plans. We repealed the core of the disastrous Obamacare. The individual mandate is now gone. Thank well, that's, uh, that's a big one. Uh, that, that's about all he says about Obamacare through the entire State of the Union address. But and I agree with the pundits that I heard today. This is not my idea. It's theirs that this description of the uh, disastrous Obamacare certainly um, destroys any attempt to reach across the aisle, uh, certainly sets the tone for the rest of the speech despite some hints uh, from his crew to the contrary. This pretty much uh, kills any effort to do anything bipartisan and certainly sets the tone for the rest of the speech. But this is all you're going to hear about Obamacare repeal. Everything else is much more specific and less ambitious than a full repeal of Obamacare. And when we get through all the clips, um, I will sort of walk you through why I think that's a pretty good strategy. Next, we move on to some of these smaller issues. 
So he has been doing some work with the VA. And you know we've talked about the VA and how disastrous and horrible the VA is and, and how you know disgusting it is that the folks who, who lay down their lives for this country get such poor care. Uh, and, and it's interesting that, that he brought this up. I, I, I was not fully versed on the VA Accountability Act and what's gone on with that so far. But uh, here are Mr. Trump's comments. Last year, Congress also passed and I signed the landmark VA Accountability Act. Since its passage, my administration has already removed more than 1,500 VA employees who failed to give our veterans the care they deserve. And we are hiring talented people who love our vets as much as we do. So interesting stuff. He also made a comment that I wasn't able to capture on a sound clip that, that referenced choice for veterans seeking care, which I assume is this program that's supposedly in place to allow vets to go outside the VA if their care is delayed beyond a certain point. We have learned from guests on this show with Dr. Hal that that program is not nearly working as well as advertised. Uh, I'm not sure the president is aware of that or not. Uh, moving on to 1,500 employees that have been dismissed, well, I guess that's a reasonable start. Um, no, nothing that I know of has been published or discussed to know if these are yielding any tangible results in some of the worst places regarding the VA. But certainly in a first year, uh, as long as he pledges to continue to work to improve the care of veterans, you know, we have our opinion about what needs to happen. The VA simply needs to go away and vets need to be given a, an insurance card or, or a Medicare equivalent that allows them to simply go out into the uh, healthcare system overall, as opposed to making them live with a single payer system, the, the equivalent of the National Health Service or Canadian healthcare, which we know doesn't work, whether it's the VA or Canada or the UK, uh, that a single payer system is a disaster, and we take the most deserving class of people in our country and force them to live with that. That's bad. But at least it's, it is slightly better than nothing and with a whole lot of other issues to deal with. Hopefully this, this comes around as part of a, of a bigger re revision of the health care system over the next several years uh, that VEST can take advantage of as much as everyone else. The next clip I've got I think is – well, the next clip is actually the FDA. I'm sort of doing these in, in chronological order. So he also mentions that the FDA is accomplishing some things. Here we go. Exciting progress is happening every single day. To speed access to breakthrough cures and affordable generic drugs, last year the FDA approved more new and generic drugs and medical devices than ever before in our country's history. So fair enough, a deed that stands on its own words and its own merits, that's fine. Um, you know, hopefully they're maintaining a, a level of margin of safety, but that, that hasn't been the problem. The problem has been too much regulation and having things move too slowly. So with a certain amount of caution, I think it's reasonable to acknowledge that it's a trend in the right direction. Um, next item is really cool, and, and this is something that we have talked about uh, on the show uh, in passing on multiple occasions, uh, something called the right to try. We also believe that patients with terminal conditions 
terminal illness should have access to experimental treatment immediately that could potentially save their lives. People who are terminally ill should not have to go from country to country to seek a cure. I want to give them a chance right here at home. It's time for Congress to give these wonderful, incredible Americans the right to try. So very interesting how he structures that. He kind of leads up to the, uh, you know, the, the pitch phrase, the buzz phrase that we talk about, right to try, which if you're in the right circles and a listener of this show, that you'll understand immediately what that means just by the term. Um, interesting that he went to great lengths to include that term, the right to try. And uh, certainly we have always agreed with that. Uh, it's a relatively limited in scope idea, um, but I think everybody can agree on that, hopefully. Um, next, we'll get into the, the last of – well, not the last, the next to last, actually the two biggest of the issues that he brought up. The first is prescription drug prices, and the second is opioids. So I'll let him go into his treatise on prescription drug prices, and then we'll talk about how one should interpret that. One of my greatest priorities is to reduce the price of prescription drugs. In many other countries, these drugs cost far less than what we pay in the United States, and it's very, very unfair. That is why I've directed my administration to make fixing the injustice of high drug prices one of my top priorities for the year. Okay, good as far as it goes. Notice the approach here is very different. When he talked about right to try, which is a far safer topic, uh, he went at, went straight at the issue and used the term right to try. In the drug price discussion, for lack of a better term, very short discussion, um, he was very careful to stay vague for some reason. So let's look at what he didn't mention. He didn't mention – uh, pharmacy benefit managers. He didn't mention Big Pharma. He really didn't name the enemy. He left it very vague, and I'm a little disturbed by his reference to cheap drug prices in other countries because the reason drug prices are cheaper in other countries is because they're controlled by the government. They have price controls on these things in many places. And so to suggest that other countries somehow have the solution and we don't, might lead to a solution in this country which isn't good because fixing drug prices isn't going to help. What we need is transparency in drug prices and the elimination of pharmacy benefit managers and the exposure of their horrible rebate-based pricing practices and the extortion that they put on drug suppliers to put build rebates into the pricing structure so that you'll be included in a drug company's formulary, in a, in a PBM's formulary. And so – yeah, I'm, I'm a little concerned, and again, it, maybe he had to do this for political reasons. I don't know, but I'm concerned with the verbiage there that Trump is missing the point, although acknowledging that high prescription drug prices is a major problem is obviously at least a start. So the last clip. 
talking about opioids. Now, if you saw the speech, you, we know that he went into a very, very touching story about a couple, uh, one of which I think was a policeman or an EMT or something that came upon a drug-addicted pregnant mom who was about to inject herself with heroin, and they, he got her to stop, and they adopted the child, and it was a beautiful, touching moment. I'm not going to replay all of that, but at least give you the introduction to his introductory remarks to the opioid issue. These reforms will also support our response to the terrible crisis of opioid and drug addiction. Never before has it been like it is now. It is terrible. We have to do something about it. In 2016, we lost 64,000 Americans to drug overdoses, 174 deaths per day, seven per hour. We must get much tougher on drug dealers and pushers if we are going to succeed in stopping this scourge. Okay, so let's talk about this a little bit. i got 30 seconds to the end of the segment. Again, I'm a little bit concerned. Um, it's easy to jump on pushers and all those folks, and certainly they're, they're bad, evil people, and we need to go after them and get them behind bars for sure. But I think, again, a major point missed here is that most of the new cases of opioid addiction, as I understand it, uh, many of those – come from folks who are using prescription opioids as opposed to illicit ones. We'll pick this up in the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak at your service. Uh, I alternate weeks with the inimitable Dr. Hal Shirts on the Doctor's Lounge and America's Web Radio. Hal will be with you next week. Uh, we are finishing up the first of our topics today, uh, which is to pick apart the president's State of the Union message from night before last uh, and look at the health care pieces of what he had to say and sort of analyze those. And we had just finished talking about the opioid uh, issue and that uh, he certainly mentioned 
appropriately, uh, that it's a terrible problem. Seven deaths per minute is an interesting number to kind of put out there to give one an appreciation. I'm sorry, seven deaths per hour uh, is an interesting way to sort of express a statistic that really brings it home. The example that he had with the couple who adopted the uh, child of an addicted mom was very touching. Uh, But I was a little concerned uh, the way he was talking about drug pushers as the major problem. Um, that's a well-acknowledged issue, and I'm not saying it's not a problem, but we did sort of fit in just at the end of the hour, and I wanted to flesh the point out a little bit, that uh, that most of these folks, maybe not most, many of the folks who are addicted to opioids start out with prescription opioids given to them for legitimate medical problems, and they use these things long enough that they become addicted Uh, And the real major issue is the prescriptions that are given out with the best of intentions by physicians and others. But uh, and and at the state level, this is getting dealt with at least at some level. In Georgia, there's going to be a big registry that actually went live first of the year. Uh, And so I think there needs to be more work done on the, the, the legitimate medical side where people are getting hooked on things. And there's a lot of, of legitimate issues out there. We've talked about some of these before. Uh, there was a very uh, you know, incestuous, unholy alliance between uh, the Joint Committee of Accreditation of Hospitals and the manufacture of OxyContin and this whole concept of the pain scale and that JCAH required hospitals to adopt and use a pain scale a 1 to 10 pain scale for hospitalized patients. And then the idea was to treat with pain medication until pain was fully controlled as opposed to just treating until the patient was comfortable but still feeling some pain. And there's a huge difference between those, the amount of medicine you give, and and how that can really get folks to be addicted. And if memory serves, there's even a class action lawsuit or a lawsuit of some kind against JCO for uh, that practice. So, you know, it's... Not to to diminish the the horrible role of drug dealers and drug pushers, but there's certainly more to the opioid problem than that, and I'm concerned that 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 his, his remarks there kind of missed the point a bit. So let's talk about all, this entire body of healthcare comments together. We have the Obamacare uh, repeal of the individual mandate that he mentioned. Uh, you know, with the adjective, I think he said disastrous Obamacare, you know, certainly, you know, turning the, the, the Democrats off and sort of shutting down any sort of, number one, shutting down any sort of dialogue. And and also, I think the administration has decided, and I think they decided this at a strategic planning meeting uh, in uh, in January earlier this month, or earlier last month, that, um, that, that repeal of Obamacare as a giant project is not going to be on the agenda for 2018 the way it was in 2017. And I think that makes sense politically because if you failed at it last year, what are you going to do different that you're not going to fail at it this year and you don't want to fail at a health care issue so close to an election in November? So what do you do instead? What they're doing, and this is not a bad idea, is instead of trying to fix the entire health care system in one bill, which is to sort of knock off certain parts of it, and that does two things. One is it keeps the ball rolling on health care. The other is that when Republicans this election year get quizzed on health care policy, and you know that they will, that they will have talking points. They will have smaller talking points. They can talk about 
how the FDA is working better, how they've pledged to reduce drug prices, how they're working on the opioid epidemic. Uh, and so you have some talking points here that at least you can respond to those questions without getting painted into a corner saying that we have to go after Obamacare one more time. Well, you know, in a sense, they already did, although, you know, repealing just the individual mandate, I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference, unfortunately. My response to that from a doctor patient care standpoint, from the standpoint of the movement of grassroots physicians among several groups uh, of which we are one, is if they're looking for individual talking points, we've got them, Mr. President. We have other ones that you can use. We have our direct primary care initiative. We have our talking points and uh, issue with certificate of need and maintenance of certification, as well as malpractice reform, health information technology, and several others. Now, that may be too many vegetables to put on one plate, but we have ways and, and we have options to, to add to the body of talking points and uh, hopefully as the months pass this year, you know, two things can happen. One is maybe we can flesh out talking points for the midterm election. But I think the real groundwork can be laid for 2019 to bring all of these things to the forefront after hopefully a favorable election. And again, there's a whole other topic that could burn up a whole hour and we're not going to do that. But um, it, it does, I think, give the grassroots physician groups – about a half a dozen or so, of which were one, an opportunity to approach our government, our federal government, with another offer to help. And I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm contradicting myself because I've said so many times in the last few months on this show that government's never going to be able to solve this problem, and that that may well be true. Uh, but uh, as, uh, as as one of my colleagues, Dr. Marion Mass from Philadelphia whom I've had the privilege of talking to on the phone for several hours this week, and Marion, I'm certainly grateful for your time, uh, is that at least we could make sure the government doesn't pass additional legislation that hurts the efforts we're trying to do outside of government to reform health care, such as direct primary care, such as working on some of these smaller issues at the state level. And uh, you know that may be the most appropriate strategy we can come up with. But I have been... Very impressed with the work that Marion has been doing, as she's told me this week, and uh, you know, gives me maybe a little bit of renewed optimism for actually engaging Washington again. Next, we're going to move on to a couple of other topics, and um, I, I promised a couple of short discussions on two topics in health information technology uh, that uh, I think we need to do a bit of myth-busting on. And these are sort of the selling points that help the health information technology community has been putting out over the past couple of years. Because ever since they grew so big because of meaningful use and our, our forced implementation of health information technology that was not ready to be widely implemented, that every year they've come up with a gimmick. And that makes them no different than, I suppose, any other industry. But you remember in 2013, 2014, that was the year you were supposed to replace your bad EMR with a good one. That was a bunch of crap. And then we got cloud computing. If you weren't going to the cloud, well, you were missing the boat, which is odd because boats don't live in clouds. But uh, And now this year, starting with the, the big HIMSS meeting last year, for the past 12 months, and it's gaining steam, is the whole concept of artificial intelligence. 
that this concept of, of, of computers that are so powerful and applications that are so powerful that they can begin to approach something that resembles intelligence, cognition, and can do really neat things. And IBM's been pushing this more than anyone. The CEO of IBM was the keynote speaker at the big health information technology convention called HIMSS. Uh, last year in Orlando, and IBM, of course, has Watson, which is this supercomputer that you know, allegedly does artificial intelligence, and that uh, IBM has done a great deal of bragging about how Watson can pick treatment protocols for cancer better than a team of doctors can. What they don't tell you, you know, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, is behind Watson is an army of human beings, flesh and blood physicians, that continue to program protocols into Watson and what the selection criteria are for these protocols into Watson. And so really what you're doing isn't that exciting. It is nothing more than a drug, a, a cancer treatment protocol database that has all of the eligibility criteria for each protocol programmed in. So you enter a patient profile. It sees if any of the protocols have you know, an eligibility for that patient and then recommends based on eligibility. Well, I think I've been in IT long enough to say this. I mean, you could run that thing on a bloody laptop. There's nothing there that is terribly special. And so I don't really understand why they're touting this as artificial intelligence when it's really not. So as you listen to the hype from the health IT community talking about artificial intelligence, look at it with a jaundiced eye because it's really, I don't think, all that it's hyped up to be. And it also forces the health IT community to miss the point one more time which is that physicians need, and I won't elaborate because I've said it so darn many times in this program, we need products that do the work for us. It's not glamorous to say that a EMR product will help you get your chest X-ray ordered faster. That doesn't make the marketing people's hearts go pitter-patter. But it's what we need. So, you know, the first phase of health IT expansion, the regulations prevented us from getting what we need. Now we may be entering another phase where a combination of regulations plus artificially created market hype over something that's not nearly as useful as they say it is, artificial intelligence. And again, it's causing them to take their eye off the ball and I end up having to make the same speech over and over again but just modify it and say – Pay no attention to the artificial intelligence concept. Please, please, please give us products that, that give us what we need, not what you, the vendors, think we need. There is one exception to this, the artificial intelligence issue. There is one place where artificial intelligence, I think, will make a great deal of progress over the next five to ten years. And this is both inside of medicine and outside of medicine, and it is image recognition and image analysis, right? You've probably read about how artificial intelligence can do facial recognition. That's true. Take that same technology and turn it towards medicine. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see artificial intelligence interpreting medical imaging, whether that's a chest X-ray, a CAT scan, an ultrasound, or pathology slides. Wouldn't it be good if we had a machine that could support the pathologist in interpreting pathology slides to decide whether it's benign or it's malignant, 
or one of those things, there, there, there may be something there. And I'm not a pathologist, and I understand that that concept sort of directly threatens pathologists, and, and, I, and I understand and sympathize with that. But, but image analysis seems to be one of the very strong points, whether it's radiology or, um, or pathology. I think artificial intelligence really has the potential there. The, in the rest of medicine, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to do there. And the folks who think that artificial intelligence can replace doctors someday, well, maybe, but that's going to be many decades down the road. And those of us who understand the human side of medicine really don't fear artificial intelligence at all. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, Segment 3. Dr. Mike Karuchak at your service in the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Thanks very much for sticking with us through Segment 3. We've got neat stuff to talk about uh, to flesh out the hour, so stick around if you can. So we were talking in the last segment about um, artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about cloud computing and some of the recent experiences that our practice has had in revamping our uh, EMR software and how we assume we're going to be going cloud for sure, but we're not. We just put down an order to to buy $180,000 worth of our own servers and own infrastructure. But let's finish with uh, artificial intelligence because I was talking to you about how artificial intelligence is far more marketing hype than it is substance. It's, it's nothing more than a gimmick in my opinion with the notable exception of medical images, whether those are pathology slides, CAT scans, plain films, chest x-rays, ultrasounds, you name it, those sorts of things. I think image analysis – is going to be a real uh, place where artificial intelligence may truly have a meaningful and helpful role. Outside of that, uh, I don't see AI as really having any any impact in the foreseeable future. Uh, Part of the reason I say that is because some things that are being labeled as artificial intelligence really aren't, right? If you have a Watson-based protocol of cancer treatment protocols, and you're simply screening a patient for eligibility for several thousand protocols, that can be run on a laptop computer. That's not artificial intelligence. That's database management, simple database management. And 
you know, it takes so many human beings to program Watson from the back side, from the from the um, from the support side. That uh, that's it, it, it's like the Wizard of Oz and the man behind the curtain with the great mighty Oz, which would be Watson up there projected on the front wall with a group of doctors hiding behind the curtain that's really doing all the talking. They're just doing it through a computer. Um, that's not AI to me, not even close. And for those of us who are physicians, and I know this audience is a lot of doctors, but I hope there's some non-physicians that, that listen to this, um, that that medicine is such a human-to-human contact art, right? We talk about the art of medicine, that, that there's no way that AI can really help with the art of medicine, at least not in the foreseeable future. So many of my patients come in and just want to talk. You know, they, they come in with a, a series of sort of vague symptoms that are hard to put together. Once you get to talking to them long enough, you discover that maybe the symptoms aren't bothering them that much. They just want to make sure they're okay, that the symptoms don't add up to something serious. Uh, and, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, what, what they need from their doctor is far more human than it is scientific. And if all you do is use a biochemical, mechanical model of humanity – to try and approach those folks, you won't serve them well. And the, the medicine is so deeply requires, has a requirement of human-to-human contact that I don't think we're ever going to get that out of AI. Now, that's not to say that we can't use AI in certain places, right? If a patient comes in with a strange constellation of symptoms, you can enter those or – you know, something in the background can pull those things with, you know, language recognition or that sort of thing and, and try to offer you something where maybe you feel stumped. I think that's great. But the idea that, uh, you know, we're going to have a Star Trek type holographic physician that that walks around treating people, uh, you know, that, that model is not going to serve the basic human needs that a patient needs from a doctor beyond the hard science. So when you hear about artificial intelligence, take it with a grain of salt unless they're talking about medical image analysis, in which point in case I would pay a whole lot more attention. Enough of that. I promised you we were going to talk about my practice's experience with um, our, our recent upgrade of our, of our EMR system. Our practice has had our electronic medical record system since 2004 is when the first machines were installed. Uh, the first generation of hardware lasted four or five years, and we replaced those. Uh, the current generation of hardware of servers that we have is over nine years old. Now, in, in computer years, right, not quite the same as dog years, but in computer years, that must be like 100 years. Um, it's great that we got nine years of service out of these servers, but they are overloaded now and they're falling apart and we're having to do a lot of patching and a lot of duct tape and bailing wire to get the things to continue to run. So we decided several months ago, we saw this coming, um, we started doing research on what we wanted to do to replace our electronic medical record computers, the hardware, the beige boxes, if you will. And in broad strokes, you have two choices. One is we could simply replace the beige boxes. And the other is that we can go cloud, right? And you've all heard about cloud computing and the IBM cloud and everybody's cloud and iCloud from Apple, right? The cloud thing is, is, is one of the big 
hype buzzwords uh, to try to get you, the consumer, to buy stuff. And that's fine as far as it goes, but when you're talking about a, a huge decision affecting 20 physicians and hundreds of thousands of patients over the course of time, um, that's the hype you cannot fall into. We looked at cloud computing back 10 years ago when we replaced our first generation of servers, and it was far too expensive. Going into this replacement cycle, I just assumed, and it was, you know, I've got the leadership position for this. I just assumed that we would be going cloud. I thought, you know, 10 years later, nine years later, cloud must have come down in price. It must be much better quality. And I just figured that's where we're going to go. Now, physicians are often, and I include myself in this, uh, often not the greatest decision makers outside the practice of medicine on behalf of their patients because we spent all of our training learning how to make sick people well. That comes at the expense of knowing other things. And so I'm going to lay this out in a little bit more detail. We talked about the options. You can buy your own beige boxes to run your electronic medical record system on, or you can go cloud. Well, what the heck is the cloud anyway? Yeah, I think it's really just another name for Internet-based access to what you need, right? Now, we talk about Internet access where you go to your browser and you go to a website and you read stuff and you download stuff and you can play interactive games on websites and whatnot. But this is sort of Internet access at a different level. This is putting your patient's, uh, your, your patient's records someplace that you have absolutely no physical control over them. When you put things in the cloud, you have a vendor who, for a price, assumes the responsibility of giving you access to your data whenever you need it. But in the cloud, you don't know physically where that data, where those data are, right? Some of your data might be on a beige box in New York, and some of your data might be on a beige box in Denver, and some of your data might be in a beige box in Bangkok, and the, the EMR product, the application, might be operating off of a server in Florida or Canada or South America. And the Internet is so fast and so efficient that vendors can put that network of hardware and software, data and applications, and put those all together so that when you access them on a computer, your user's computer, you can't tell the difference. It runs as fast and as efficiently as if we're sitting on the hard drive on your own beige box sitting underneath your desk. Another way to think of it is the difference between buying a house and living in a condominium. Right? When you buy a house, it's your house. It's freestanding. You know where the walls are. You know where the furnace is. You own everything inside it. When it breaks, you have to fix it yourself. And if you want a bigger house, you have to buy building materials to build on and that costs more money. So that's like buying your beige boxes. Going cloud is like living in a condominium, except that when you walk in the front door of your condo and you say you need to go to bed, so you need a bathroom and a bedroom and all that kind of stuff, that it may serve you up a bathroom from the eighth floor, a bedroom from the sixth floor, and a kitchen from the basement and assemble this all in a virtual environment so that it looks like you are just have a kitchen and a bedroom and a bathroom – but in reality, the, 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 the physical kitchen you're using is on one floor and the bedroom is on another floor and the bathroom is somewhere else. But through the wonder of the Internet, these all get brought together virtually in the same place and you can't tell the difference. 
with one significant exception. And this headline came out a couple of weeks ago. You may have read about it, right? We always hear these stories about hacking and privacy violations and vulnerability, right? We just heard about one of the major EMR vendors, Allscripts, which had a, a ransomware attack, which shut down every single one of its member practices for several days, I think, which would be a disaster. So here's the problem, is that when you have – when you're going condo, right, you're going cloud and you you walk in the front door and here you, know, you have a kitchen delivered to you and a bathroom delivered to you and a bedroom delivered to you, the problem is – that if if uh, if a burglar breaks into the physical building that houses all these these services that you know if you break into one floor everybody's affected no matter what floor you live on so that means that a burglar that breaks into the all of the kitchens that are on the ground floor can now ruin the kitchen for every single vendor every single person that lives in the in this cloud based condo that I'm talking about. I hope this example makes sense. Conversely, with Allscripts, all they had to do was hack into one server or one network of servers with Allscripts, and every single user's data was compromised. If you have your own base boxes, that doesn't happen. If they break into one practice, they get, they get all the data for one practice. If you're cloud-based with a vendor and they break in at the vendor level, which is different than breaking in at the practice level, then you have a huge issue with privacy. With cloud, and my assumption was that because they were full-time professionals, they were monitoring the security. But it turns out the very nature of cloud computing is a huge security risk. And if you don't believe me, then think about the recent headline—not the Allscripts issue, but the um, what were they? Spectre and Meltdown were the names. These were hacker vulnerabilities that were discovered on CPU chips, on Intel chips. And the problem with these hacking vulnerabilities, that they live at the chip level. They live at the hardware level. They're on the CPU. They're in the very, very heart of the computer. And as such, they are almost impossible to fix because it's hard to fix a hardware defect with software. And, this, and it turns out this vulnerability has been in chips for several years. So we have vulnerabilities at the chip level. We have documented ransomware attacks at the EMR vendor level, which affect far more patients than attacks at the practice level. And when we were putting this all together, um, we discovered that we didn't want to do this for security reasons. And so we have decided, not only based on security but based on price, and I don't have time to get into this, but for a practice of 20 physicians, it turns out buying your own beige boxes is a lot cheaper, that we have avoided the cloud – in favor of buying our old, good old-fashioned base boxes all over again. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. 
Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge here at America's Web Radio, bringing you into 2018 here in the Doctor's Lounge. Thanks very much uh, for being with us today. Mike Karuchak, your host, alternating weeks with my co-host, the inimitable Dr. Hal Schertz. And together, we look forward to beginning our fifth calendar year in bringing you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. We air live, of course, on Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio, but you can get our show as a podcast uh, anytime you like through the usual podcast app uh, or the Apple Store or whatever uh, best suits you. So uh, we're pleased to to be bringing you this again, and I'm going to bring you uh, – start the new year off with a story. Um, not exactly lined up with healthcare policy, but I like to do this once in a while because it is good – to remind you that we are doctors first. I mean, we try to be policy experts. We we bring you, and I, I think quite appropriately, a, a perspective that is grounded both in all day, every day care of sick people, combined with the scholarly review of healthcare policy and the uh, the fusion of those two perspectives. I think continues to bring you something on the Doctors Lines Radio Show that you don't get anywhere else. And I still believe that. And I think we've done a decent job over this four and a half years of doing that for you. But fundamentally, fundamentally, we are doctors first. And I'm going to just tell you a little anecdotal story just to start things off, not get quite so hardcore right off the bat. But this just happened this evening, uh, less than a, a couple of hours ago. I was making rounds at the hospital, and I had a patient I had done a thyroid operation on, removed his thyroid gland for, uh, for thyroid cancer, and uh, he is deaf and communicates by sign language, American Sign Language, ASL. And needless to say that communicating with a patient like this brings its own set of medical and administrative challenges. Now, reminding you that law requires – that we provide an interpreter for anyone who doesn't speak English, and that includes American Sign Language. So if you speak Spanish or Russian or whichever, Japanese, uh, we are required to provide an interpreter. And we don't get any extra money to do that, and the interpreter fees are very, very expensive. So that is a sort of administrative challenge. We're happy to do it, of course, but you, you can't ignore the financial aspect of that. So I'd seen him in the office twice prior to operating on him yesterday, and we had used an iPad-based sign language interpreting service with a picture of, a, of an interpreter on the other side of the iPad, and, and that was all working well enough. But uh, when he was in the hospital, uh, he stayed a, an extra day, uh, and, and I'm not sure it was something that had to be done, but he wanted to do it, and it is you know acceptable within bounds of what insurance is willing to pay for. So I was happy to do that. But uh, during the day, he was having some difficulty with the interpreter that was assigned to him. And this was not the iPad service now. This was a live, in-person, face-to-face interpreter. And they had had some difficulties. 
And the interpreter left kind of unhappy and so unhappy with the patient. I had some sort of interpersonal problem that I didn't witness and I'm not going to make any judgments. But by the time we got there, I got there after rounds to discharge him. He was not happy with the world, frustrated, couldn't communicate. We tried to set up the iPad service and the uh, Wi-Fi at the hospital was not fast enough to maintain the video connection. We finally got uh, another in-person interpreter to come to the bedside, which took quite some time. I was at his bedside a couple of hours in the evening after I had seen patients all day, which of course, as you know, if you're a doc, it's not unusual. And, uh, but it was getting difficult. You know, we talk about this doctor-patient relationship. We try to reach out to patients and, and, you know, make that connection, establish that bond, that trust. But even though we'd done the operation yesterday, it was going, you know, everything went great, you know, from a mechanical standpoint as far as the surgery is concerned. He just was not happy, not with me in particular, but just kind of mad at the whole world. And I'm thinking, how are we going to resolve this? And I have to give credit to the nurse. Uh, nurse Jennifer came up with the thing that turned this whole thing around, and that was that when she was getting him a glass of water, she asked him to teach her the sign language for fill up your glass of water, which is to hold up three fingers like a W and, and hold that to your chin. That's water, and then you make a motion with your hands like you're filling up a glass. And when she successfully signed that I'm filling your glass with water, that phrase, his eyes lit up. And he gave her a high five, and then I said, wait, wait, wait. Finally, I picked up on it. I wish – I'm mad at myself. I didn't figure this out sooner. But I was like, oh, well, okay. You know what? If she's going to do it and he likes it with her, I'm going to do it and try to gain favor in a similar way. And by God, it worked. He taught me how to do it, and then he high-fived me. All of a sudden, this angry, sullen, frustrated patient became a very happy patient, and – so we said, okay, teach us some more sign language. So I, you know, I asked him to teach me about another half a dozen words and while we were waiting for the interpreter to come. So I was just there hanging out. Um, and by the time this whole thing was finished and we had the new interpreter come, we took care of all the discharge instructions, which I stayed myself to complete, which is unusual. We don't usually have to do that. Happy to do it, of course. And by the end, he was very apologetic for how he had treated the earlier interpreter, and he expressed that, you know, it's tough to live in a world where you can't see and you can't talk and you have to do everything through sign language, and so few people do it. But um, it, it was a good lesson to learn, and it's a good lesson for me that, you know, maybe I've been a doctor for 20, 25 years, but there are still things out there to learn in the interpersonal world with your patients. Uh, why I didn't think of it myself to learn a few phrases of sign language from him as a way to try to connect to him. I'm kind of mad at myself for not coming up with that idea since, you know, if somebody likes to, you know, play baseball, you, you, you ask them about what's, you know, you, you're always, I, I try to pride myself to be good at asking patients about what motivates them, what's important to them. Clearly, someone who communicates by signing could have done that. I wasn't smart enough to do it until a nurse 
led the way, and you know, thank God she did. But um, it was a very interesting experience, and I felt really good when I left the hospital, and that's not something I anticipated. I thought, this is really going to be bad. You know, Early in the afternoon, the nurses were telling me he was threatening to sue the hospital because they weren't providing him with an on-site, in-person interpreter. I mean, it was that sort of anger and belligerence going on until Nurse Jennifer knew what to do to turn things around. So... You know, we're often accused of not giving nurses enough credit for what they do, so I don't want to miss the opportunity to give Nurse Jennifer the credit she deserves for coming up with this. But anyhow, sorry to waste seven minutes of programming time on that, but, you know, these are the stories that that give interest to our lives and our careers. Uh, You know, sometimes it's pulling off that great diagnosis. Sometimes it's pulling off that hard operation. But sometimes it's something completely non-scientific and and interpersonal and maybe even spiritual, uh, which, you know, in this world of over-regulated medicine and increasing difficulty just being able to do such a thing, that we we revel in these moments, we try to learn from them, and, uh, you know, I hope sharing this with you gives you you something that that is worthwhile. So let's move on to some some other things. The last show that I did myself... Uh, you know, we did a lot of reruns over the holidays, of course, because, well, you know why. Uh, this is our first sort of new live show material after the holidays. So I want to go back and follow up on the, the last major topic I addressed, which was online ratings systems for physicians. And I think we did a pretty good job of establishing uh, several good reasons why online rating systems for physicians don't hold a lot of water. Uh, And I said this in spite of the fact that my online rating systems are good and I do have patients who come and see me because they've researched me online. And we talked about the ethics of soliciting reviews from patients, which is something that Yelp, one of the major online review things, not just for docs but for everything, has come out against and has declared that they will penalize businesses who solicit reviews. And we talked about all of those issues. But uh, I I was thinking about this again, and I was thinking about it because, of all places, my son Andrew, who is at school. And as it turns out, that in college there are ratings systems for professors. The same five-star rating system that's used to rate doctors is also used to rate college professors. And – He is taking a course over the January interterm. He's just taking one course. He's taking it in statistics. And uh, he he made a rapid change in the course he was taking over January based solely on the online reviews. He was going to take from a professor that had a bad review rating, and he looked it up and realized he could switch to a professor with a five-star rating, and he acted on the review and switched to the five-star professor at the expense of the one-star professor. But now he's struggling. Because apparently this professor stinks. This professor is terrible. And so you say, how does that happen in a world where the college kids get to review these professors and you know try to warn or direct the students who come after them uh, by communicating through online reviews? And then I remembered, and it came up in my discussion with Andrew, about the last professor where online reviews came into play, and it was another bad professor that he had the first semester his freshman year, a little over a year ago, and Andrew gave him five stars at the end, and I said, well, this was a terrible professor. Why did you do that? He said, well, because he gave me an A. So in the educational world, we have a tremendous 
selection bias or ratings bias because if a student gets an A from a professor, then they're almost guaranteed a five-star review. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was some you know, a covert uh, quid pro quo here. I don't think anybody was reaching out to anybody else and making those deals. I'm just saying that there is a natural tendency, I think, when you are a student and you know the, the, your future, your transcript is in the hand of your professor, then your professor gives you an A, that you're not going to rate that professor badly. But now there's a problem with, you know, are online ratings going to promote great inflation? Is there going to be some, you know, clearly the online rating systems for professors is worthless because it is as much linked to grades as it is to anything else. And that's a problem. But it got me thinking about the doctor online ratings system again, and it got me thinking about uh, what else I could learn uh, and do a bit more research. And then it turned out that on the first of the year, New Year's Day, uh, the New York Times uh, published an article about uh, another VA scandal article that um, it, uh, originates in uh, Roseburg, Oregon, which is a little mining town uh, where there aren't a lot of options for health care, and so the VA obviously gets leaned upon very heavily uh, by the vets up there. But there was this article in the New York Times, and we're getting to the end of this segment, so we'll pick it up in the next segment, um, that where they were, they were gaming the rating system, and at the same time that the, doc, the, the hospital ratings were going up, true quality of care was going down. We'll pick this up in the next segment. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 